This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. Happy Father's Day. I just echo what Rob said earlier and, and wish you all a happy Father's Day. We're going to just continue right through our teaching. Sometimes on Mother's Day and Father's Day, I address the topic. But today we're going to just continue on in our series through 1 Corinthians because I think this is a perfect chapter to talk about on uh, Father's Day, um, especially as we consider the Father's love for us uh, as we cover uh, 1 Corinthians 13. So we're going to, if you open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 13, please. And um, If you don't have a Bible, there is uh, one under you, uh, in front of you, in the chair in front of you. You can grab that Bible. And I would encourage you, maybe you're not a normal Bible reader, or maybe you're not really a, you know, kind of track along and look at the program and stuff like that. You go to the baseball games, you don't ever fill out the scorecard or whatever. But I'd encourage you to track along with your Bible as we go through, because we're going to look at virtually every word of this passage, and you'll be able to really keep up with it if uh, if you read along. It's on page 559. So if you'll look at page 559. 559, or if you have a Bible or you're looking at it uh, on your phone, on an app on your phone, uh, 1 Corinthians 13. Let's, let's hear God's word to us this morning. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and as we this morning read a passage that is familiar to many in the room, we pray that you would give us fresh eyes um, to see the truth of this passage, and we pray that you would give us fresh eyes to see you most of all. We pray that we would see the, uh, your love in Christ towards us, and that we would be moved, we would be affected, we would be uh, stirred by it, really that we'd be changed by it. So God, would your gospel be big to us today, we pray, and uh, we pray that you would just speak to us by your Holy Spirit. Give us ears to hear what you are saying and give us hearts to respond to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this, uh, this passage... And let me say something about this passage. I'm just going to work my way straight through it. There's kind of different kinds of sermons. Some sermons are a little bit more exhortative in nature, so they're a little bit of a charge and that sort of thing. As we've gone through these chapters, chapter 12, 13, and 14, I'm, I'm taking much more of what could be called the didactic approach, a teaching, a just measured verse by verse, word by word, because I want us to get this. And so it's been a bit more of an instructive uh, approach to teaching than sometimes I do, frequently I do. And, and we're going to do that here. We're just going to go verse by verse through it. And it's, it's one of the most quoted passages in all of scripture. It's popular uh, to read this passage at weddings. Maybe you had this read at your own wedding. It's certainly common uh, because it's a beautiful description 
of love, arguably uh, the most beautiful description of love. However, this chapter really loses a lot of its power if it's sort of lifted out of its context and just read without an understanding of what's going on. This isn't the Apostle Paul just sort of teaching along and thinking, you know what, let's take a break, and I'm just going to kind of randomly drop a love poem in the midst of what I'm saying. But if you've been tracking through this whole book, you know how vital this chapter is because it really goes to the heart of the problem in Corinth. He is addressing a primary problem in their church. And now he's talking about spiritual gifts. So this is placed in the middle of chapter 12 and chapter 14, which are both about spiritual gifts. And the Corinthians are all about spiritual gifts. And the point Paul is making is that God is all about love. They're about spiritual gifts. God is about love. And God prioritizes love because love prioritizes others. That's what's at heart here. God prioritizes love because love prioritizes others. And we're also going to see in this passage that love lasts forever. So his two big ideas here is the priority of love, that love is to be prioritized because it prioritizes others and because it lasts or it endures forever. So let me say a, a bit here before we jump in uh, to the pri- about the priority of love. So I'm going to talk about the priority of love, then we're going to discuss this picture of love, and then we're going to look at the permanence of love. So first of all is the priority of love. Paul begins by talking about the gift of speaking in tongues. Verse 1, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging symbol. Now, why is he talking about this? Well, he's talking about this because this is the priority for the Corinthians. They, they value speaking in tongues above other gifts. And speaking in tongues is speaking to God in a language that is unintelligible to the speaker, but is obviously intelligible to God. And the Corinthians have thought that when they are speaking in tongues, they are in an elevated sort of spiritual experience. Maybe they may even think they're speaking an angelic language. He says, if I am, am, if I am uh, speaking in the tongues of men and of angels. Now, Paul doesn't endorse that, but that they're speaking in, the, in a heavenly language, but they may believe that. And his point is, whether you are speaking in a language that you do not know supernaturally, even an angelic one, if if that were possible, even then it is meaningless noise if you don't have love. And the Corinthians, they don't love each other. And so what he's saying is your gifts are like clanging cymbals, that they they are like a noisy gong. And that's not just true for tongues, that's that's true for any gift. If we are using our gifts, if we are using our spiritual gifts to help other people, but we are not doing it motivated by love, it's meaningless noise. We may make a loud sound, but we won't make a difference in terms of the Lord's purposes Because the Lord says love is priority. He mentions other gifts as well. So it's not just tongues. Verse 2, he says, if I have prophetic powers, Paul really endorses the gift of prophecy. Next week, we'll talk about prophecy in tongues. That's chapter 14. And Paul highlights the importance of the gift of prophecy, which is speaking to people. It's God putting something on someone's heart that the person brings this message to people for their upbuilding, for their consolation, for their edification. And so Paul's all about this gift. But even here he says, if I have all prophetic powers, if I don't have love, it is worthless. It is meaningless. He mentions the gift of faith as well. All of these were gifts in chapter 12. Remember, he talked about the gift of faith there. And he says, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, I mean, this is astounding. If you have enough faith that you could trust God and a mountain moves, that is a staggering gift of faith. He says, if I have that, but not love, verse two, I am nothing. So I could have all of these supernatural gifts. I could have all this faith, but if I don't have love, it does not matter. Commentator Phil Riken said about this, what matters most is not how gifted we are, but how loving we are. That's so true. Remember that when you're tempted to envy someone else's gifts. 
remember that what matters most is not how gifted we are, it's how loving we are. The Lord evaluates on a totally different scale. In our culture, we value gifted people who can do uh, amazing things, especially even in the church, people that are extraordinarily gifted and able to make a real difference in whatever their gift is, whether it's a behind the scenes gift or a public gift, we really value that. But Paul says it's not the gifts that are most valuable. It is the motivation of love, Christ's love. Now then to make the point even more shocking, if mountain moving faith is enough, he then goes to good works and he specifically talks about sacrifices. If I give away all that I have, presumably if I give all of my goods to care for the poor, that's probably what's in mind there. If I give away everything I have to take care of poor people, I mean, it'd be hard to imagine a more noble act than that. But he says, if I do that, but without love, I gain nothing. And then he elevates it to the greatest sacrifice imaginable. If I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. He says, even if I'm a martyr, even if I'm martyred for my faith, but I'm not motivated by love for others, I gain nothing. So whether it's exercising a gift or dying for your faith, he's saying no matter what, without love, it means nothing. It is a clanging symbol. It's noise. You gain nothing from it. It means nothing, he says. I mean, this this would grab the Corinthians' attention, and the Lord wants it to grab our attention too, that love is so vital, so important, so critical, so central, that the greatest sacrifice is not properly motivated by the love of God and for the love of God and the love of others. Or meaningless. Well, he doesn't leave us guessing what, what this love is that he ultimately has in mind because the second verses, verses four, second section, verses four through seven are, give us a picture of love. So we have the priority of love, verses one through three, verses four through seven, the picture of love. Now in these wedding verses, and this is the ball, this is the center of the wedding verses is love is patient and kind and does not envy or boast. That, that section right there, it's not so much a definition of love, but it is more of a description of love. And some have pointed out that it's actually, and this is important, it's actually a personification of love. Take you back to eighth grade English. Personification is when you give personal qualities uh, to something that's not personal, like love. So Paul takes love and acts like love is a person. Love is acting like a human would. Like a person is patient, a person is kind, a a person does not envy. A thing can't do that. An idea can't do that. Only a person is not arrogant, is not rude, does not insist on his own way. So he personifies love. And that's a key to understanding the text is that love is personified here. And who is the person that is ultimately being personified? Someone said Paul's language here is not so much the language of an artist or the work of an artist. It is rather the work of a photographer. And Jesus is the subject. Jesus is the subject. This is a personification. And the person who displays this perfectly is the Lord Jesus the Father as well, the Spirit as well, but it's a personification. And, and as God's body, as Christ's body, the passage, chapter 12 says, where's body? As his body, we are to look like our head. So this applies to us. It applies to the Corinthians saying, this is what Jesus is like. He is your head and we are to look this way as well. But we really want to emphasize how the Lord walks this out, how the Lord lives this out. For a couple of reasons. First of all, it's absolutely despairing to read this passage and think about it and to compare this passage to my own life and say, if this is what I must do to be acceptable by God, I'm hopeless. It's over. So it can be very depressing. It can be very depressing to talk about this on Father's Day because as we walk through this list, I'm very aware of, well, just take, take, take your pick, my impatience with my children historically, um, I'm almost an empty nester, and I've found out patience is a lot easier as an empty nester than when the kids are in the home. It's amazing. But, uh, but, uh, but love is patient. So 
I can look at my own life and feel very guilty and condemned. And so what we want to do is we certainly want to be challenged by the text, but we want to look at it with gospel lenses because we want to see how the Lord loves us this way. Because the more we understand his love for us, the more we will be able to express his love through us. The only way we are able to love others by the power of the Holy Spirit is to more deeply grasp his love for us. So I'm going to talk about both. I'm going to talk about our love for others, but it's all going to be motivated by his love for us. So let's look at each of these. Number one, love is patient. I think the King James Version says, it suffereth long. It's long suffering. Love is forbearing. See, patience has at its core the idea of waiting. Patience, the central idea behind patience is waiting. And thus, it is one of the least desirable character qualities for most of us. Because we don't wait well. We don't wait well. But patience means waiting. Waiting especially in love towards others when we have been wronged. When we want someone to change perhaps and they haven't. And we're called to forbear and to suffer long. It's called long suffering because you suffer while you wait. And loving patience means that we are suffering and waiting but it's related to people. So perhaps someone has wronged us. Perhaps someone is not living in a way that we wish they were or behaving in a manner that is godly or something like this. And it is being forbearing with them. And this is exactly how God responds to us. Exactly. If I was going to preach on Father's Day, a Father's Day passage, I would probably look at the story of the prodigal son. Because in that passage, you see the father's patient love for us. As the rebel son goes and, and, and really just offends his father by demanding prematurely what is his and takes it, dishonors the family, hinders the family financially, acts as if his dad is dead. Give me the inheritance now. You're dead to me, dad, is what he's saying. And in rebellion goes and wastes the family fortune. in in, in sinful living. But while he is out, the story tells us that the father is waiting and looking and longing. That's patience. Patient with his son until his son comes to his senses and comes running to his father. That's the biblical picture of gracious and long-suffering. And God has treated you that way. God has treated me that way. We have given God every reason to be perturbed, to be irritated, to be violently angry with us as we have, as we have trampled upon his holiness. And yet the father extends a loving patience to us. And the only way that we can be patient with others is to be embraced by the loving patience of God towards us and to then turn and treat others the way he has treated me. See, we're to be patient with, if you're married, with your spouse. If you're a parent, with your two-year-old. With your teenager. With your aging parent. Many of us are getting to the stage in life where patience means relating with an aging parent who relates differently than before. Patience with those in the church. I love it when people come in and say, oh, we love this church I sort of like it when they say that because I'm just, I'm just always thinking, wow, you don't know us, but get, <laughs> but get to know us. And you just like at Corinth and like every church, you will be called upon to exercise patience with people in the church. The impatient just pop church to church, never mature, never grow, never picture Jesus Christ like this because they never stick around or get close enough to have to be patient. You know you're really fully embedded into the church when you have to long, you have to suffer long with people. You have to forbear, until you're forbearing, you're not really experiencing the fullness of love in the church as the father has, he forbears with us. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is kind. It seems like a small thing, kindness, right? It seems like a small virtue. I mean, it almost seems soft. It almost, honestly, the word kindness almost seems like a wimpy virtue. Like guys don't want to be known. Man, you just don't talk about it. Man, that dude is kind. 
oh, wow, that, yes. I mean, God, I don't mean to be, uh, you know, sexist or overly generalized here because maybe there are men in the room who want to be known that way. Biblically, we should want to be known that way. But culturally, we don't. Kind. He's kind. But kindness is powerful because kindness is an active quality. Patience means I am responding uh, somewhat passively to someone else and I'm exercising patience along the way. But kindness is actively doing good to others. So it is much grander and it is much more costly than we tend to think. And it's exactly how God has treated us. Ephesians 4 says, be kind to one another. But notice how Paul roots that exhortation. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Treat other people as the Father has treated you in Jesus, because Jesus has been tenderhearted to you. Jesus has forgiven you. Jesus has been kind And so be kind to one another just as God has been kind to you. It's a tangible act of love kindness. The Corinthians appear, as we read, to be completely clueless about kindness. They're divided. They're in parties. They're judging one another. But kindness is forgiveness towards those who offend. It's being tender towards others. It's taking an interest in others. It's meeting a need. Kindness is offering practical help. Kindness is listening. Kindness is bringing encouragement. Kindness is praying for people, not just saying, I'll pray for you. That's meaningless. That's a noisy gong and clanging cymbal if I don't do it. And I've clanged the cymbal in my day to my shame. But, but when we say, I'll pray for you, and we do it, that is a kindness. Charles Spurgeon, the British pastor uh, from the 1800s, he said, a man can do me no greater kindness than to pray for me. That is kind to others. In relating to an unbeliever, someone who doesn't know Christ, it's representing Christ. Ultimate, the ultimate act of kindness is telling someone about Jesus who does not know. What kinder, what, how could you do good to someone any more than tell them about the Savior who gave his life so that they might have eternal life? This is how God relates to us. He is kind. The next descriptions of love, the next picture are five negatives. Love does not envy. What's envy? Envy is discontent with what God has given me and a desire for what God has given someone else. That's discontent. When I don't like my lot, I don't like my circumstances, I don't like my situation, and I want what God has given someone else. And specifically, we talked about how that happens with spiritual gifts. Look at previous chapter, chapter 12, verse 15. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And we talked about how he talks about the human body representing the church, the body of Christ. And he says, someone could be like they're gifted to be a foot. They carry some responsibility and they could look at the hand and say, because I'm not like that person, I don't even matter. I'm not part of the church. So envy says, I'm a foot, and instead of being a foot, I want to be a hand, and I'm going to focus on what someone else has or what someone else does. Envy. You can't love someone well and envy them at the same time. Envy is categorically opposed to love. Love celebrates with another. Envy wants what another has. So also in chapter 12, it made a point. um, Let's see, chapter 12, uh, verse 26. The body, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Envy doesn't want another honored. Love says, if you're honored, we're all honored. We celebrate with you. We honor you. We thank God for you. That's love. Love celebrates when it goes well for others. See, that's the nature of love. Love is never based on comparison. Love is never based on competition. Love never measures ourselves against someone else. That's a self-focus. And it's impossible to be self-focused and selfless at the same time. can't be selfish and selfless at the same moment towards the same person. So envy is an enemy of love. Jesus never envied. Jesus never compared himself. Philippians 2 said Jesus emptied himself. 
He emptied himself and gave himself up for others. Jesus emptied himself, became man, took the form of man, the God-man, Jesus Christ, for you. He emptied himself. It does not envy. Love does not boast. That's the next one. Love isn't into bragging about itself. One scholar One commentator on this passage said the word boast, he said it references a pompous windbag. I love it when scholars use language like that. That is is a phrase. Let no, you shouldn't be thinking about someone in the room or someone out there somewhere, someone in the culture. But, But that's boasting. It's a pompous windbag. What he's saying is love doesn't draw attention to itself. Rather, it focuses on building others up. This idea of being, uh, of boasting means look at me, and it can be subtle. It could be the pompous windbag saying, This is what I've done, and telling everybody. Or it could just be a picture on Instagram put with that motive in mind. I want others to notice, respect, love, admire me. That I'm boasting in, the, in me. In a subtle, subtle way. I'm not saying that all pictures are that way or all posts on social media, but, but it can be. We have to watch why am I motivated? Why am I putting that up? And how would I feel if I don't put that up? How will I feel if I put that up and no one comments, no one likes it? How, does, how am I affected then? That reveals my motive. So, so love isn't boasting. Philippians 2 said Jesus emptied himself. This is what Jesus did. Made, it says, made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. So Jesus wasn't boasting. Jesus made himself nothing and came to serve. That's how the Lord loves us. He came to serve us. And he loved us, it says, to the point of death. He wasn't boasting and pursuing and grasping for his reputation. He wasn't establishing his platform. He left his reputation in the hands of his father. And he emptied himself, made himself a servant for the love of other people. And that's why we're sitting in the room this morning is because our Savior was not a boasting Savior, but a sacrificial Savior who made himself nothing. That is love. And we've been loved with that kind of a love. God loved us. He gave himself for us. Love is not arrogant is the next one. It's not arrogant. The word arrogant literally means puffed up. Maybe you remember Paul used that same language back in uh, chapter eight, verse one, where he said, he was talking about the weak and the strong, the weak knew they were free uh, to uh, eat meat offered to idols. I'm sorry, the strong knew they were free to eat meat offered to idols. The weak didn't. And because they had this knowledge, which was true knowledge, they were arrogant. And he said, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. That's exactly what arrogance is. It's puffed up. Church folk can be puffed up. Doctrinally, the the Corinthians were right in chapter 8-1. Their motives were wrong, but they were doctrinally right. Doctrinally sound people can be puffed up and frequently are. Doctrine's important. We want to believe true doctrine. We don't give that up. But we want to believe true doctrine without arrogance. Because love builds up. Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. He wasn't, he wasn't puffed up. He was emptied and he sacrificed himself for the sake of those he loves. Think about how Jesus is the very, humbled himself to death on a cross, the very opposite of arrogance. He endures disrespect, humiliation, hatred, blasphemy because of his love for us. He cared for us. And so he's humbled to the cross where he died that we might be forgiven. The humble one dies for arrogant people like you and me. Listen, we have nothing to be puffed up about. Compared to God Almighty, not a person in this room has anything to boast about or to be puffed up about. And yet Jesus comes and humbles himself and gives himself to creatures who act like they created and own everything. Love is not rude. It's a little bit like kind. We look at that one and go, eh, that just sounds like manners. Right? Right? Paul isn't advocating manners for manners' sake, 
But genuine courtesy is an expression of love. It really, really is. Rudeness is to behave shamefully towards others, disgracefully. <clears throat> he addressed this back in chapter 11 at the Lord's Supper. 11.20 says, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. What is that? That's rudeness on display. Those who have, not sharing with those who have not. Those who have eating, not waiting on others. And those who lack being humiliated in the process. It's to act with self-interest. That's rudeness. It thinks about me, what I want to do, and it doesn't take into account others. Rudeness is self-interest. Courtesy, it's not just about being polite. Well, we're from the South or we were from Texas. And so we kind of grew up with our manners. It's not just about having manners. It's about prioritizing others and honoring others in the way we speak and the way we behave. It's preferring others. Really not being rude is preferring other people. Again, I know I mentioned social media a few minutes ago, but it applies here too. Sometimes we will say or post things on social media that we would never say verbally to another person, but the intent is exactly the same or worse. If I'm rude to you one-on-one, that's between you and me and you're offended. If I post it to 300 people, then I'm rude to you on steroids. And many others are slimed by my selfishness. So it's not just let's be kind, let's, it's, it's, it's civility. There is an absence of civility at every level in our country. Entertainment, sports, politics for sure. There's an absence of civility and it's not about let's be nice people and let's be good folk and let's have our manners. It's about loving others and preferring others. Think about Jesus. He's never rude to people. Think about the outcasts. He's not rude to outcasts. He gravitates to outcasts. The disciples are rude. Children want to come to Jesus. I get the kids out of here. Get them. Don't let them come. Jesus, hey, let the kids come to me. He welcomed them. Jesus never acts shamefully or disgracefully towards others. And yet he was treated shamefully and disgracefully for us. Love does not insist on its own way. The NIV translates it, love is not self-seeking. It's not demanding. It's not grasping. It's not always claiming, well, I have a right to that. Now, I'm not talking about dismissing something like civil rights here. I'm talking about my personal rights. It's not like I am living for what are my rights and just grasping for what I deserve all the time. In chapters 8 through 10, that passage about the weak and the strong where Paul said, some people are really hurt by you eating meat offered to idols, even though you're free to do that. But people are hurt by that. And so this is what Paul says. If it will cause my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat the rest of my life. He did not insist on his own way. That's love. I don't have to have my way. I'm loving. Think about Jesus. Did he, was he self-seeking? Did he insist on his own way? Think about Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Lord, I'm not insisting on my way. I'm subjecting myself to the father's will. That's the whole basis of the forgiveness of our sins here today, is that Jesus didn't pursue his own will. He pursued his Father's will, and he was motivated by love for us. And so he did not insist on his own way. He insisted on the glory of his Father and the good of us. It's amazing. This is a picture of Jesus. He's not rude. He does not insist on his own way. The next one, love is not irritable. Irritable relates to patience, does it? doesn't it? Love shows up in how we respond to others. When other people act in ways that we don't like, how does love respond? Well, being unloving is to be irritable. The NIV translates this, love is not easily angered. I like that. It's not exasperated. It's not easily angered. When I get irritated, I tend to think the problem is you, not you personally, but someone, (laughs) I pointed over here. Yeah, in this section, I sense an irritable, I'm irritated. No, 
uh, it's not you, but I tend to think when I'm irritated, it's you that's irritating me. But I think the scripture locates it in me that I'm irritable. That's the bigger problem. It's not that you're irritating. From my point of view, it's not that you're irritating. That's between you and God. You may be, but that's between you and God. The issue is, am I loving, am I patient, or am I easily angered? Am I irritable? Can you get me? Old people used to say, and I'm one of them, used to say, you know, can you get my goat? You ever heard that one? He got your goat, man. He used to have a friend said, if they can get your goat, it's because you've got a goat to get. That's what this passage means. If somebody can get your goat, that's because you got a goat to get. They know how to irritate you because you're irritable. When I read through the Gospels, I just don't go, wow, Jesus, that was sure an irritable guy. You just don't see that. He's not irritable. He has arguably irritating disciples, and he does correct them. But even when he corrects them, it's out of love. It's for their good. It's motivated by compassion. So glad some of us, if you feel like, take it back to Mother's Day, if you feel like God is slight, you're a Christian and you feel like God's just sort of slightly irritated with you today, just constantly irritated by your presence, like, man, okay, I'm just, okay, but frankly, you just, I'm that far away from being ticked off by you. If you think that's how God relates to you, you need to hear that in the gospel, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The, the, the picture is the father embracing you and welcoming you. Zephaniah 3, God singing over you with love. That's the biblical picture. That's how God relates to you and to me. But sometimes we feel like God is irritable towards us. And then we, in turn, are irritable, irritable towards others. A lack of irritability is rooted in God's grace to me, that even when I'm an irritating two-year-old, and that's on my good days, when I'm an irritating two-year-old before his holiness, he's a compassionate father who, Psalm 103, does not treat us as our sins deserve, but as a father has compassion on his children. Ooh, he's not irritable. It's not resentful. The ESV footnote says that that means it does not count up. If you have the ESV, it'll say it does not count up wrongdoing. The NIV says it keeps no record of wrongs. The word is an accounting term, and it led one person to say that love remembers its creditors and forgets its debtors. Remembers its creditors, grateful for what others have done for me, and forgets its debtors. It's not being resentful or bitter and holding things over people. Now, there are times when someone wrongs us. It says it keeps no record of wrongs. There's times where we need to meet with someone and work out a resentful situation and seek, uh, rather not a resentful, an unreconciled situation and seek reconciliation because that's how God related to us. But we're not to hold it over. We're to extend forgiveness That is the love of God. Aren't you glad that the Lord is not counting our wrongs against us? That's how he relates to us. Second Corinthians says, Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So God's not keeping a record of wrongs against us. And he says, so therefore, by God's grace, you too relate to others with that same kind of love. Love does not rejoice next at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love never takes pleasure in someone else's failure. Love never takes joy in someone else's sin. Never rejoices when someone else is sinned against. Love does not secretly or publicly celebrate when others do wrong or when wrong is done against them. Doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing. Love doesn't gloat and say, I told you so when someone sins or fails. Love doesn't have a secret inner relish when someone who did you wrong later has someone do wrong to them. We all know that tasty relish of when they get what they did to me. But that's not love. That's not love. God doesn't relate to us that way. God doesn't say, well, you know what you did to me? How loving that you're, I'm doing this back to you. That's that's not how the Lord relates. Think of Christ's heart for the Pharisees. 
Even when the Pharisees are the people he brings the most critique to, they're religious people who create a way of relating to God without Jesus. They don't, they oppose Jesus. And so they're trying to relate to God in their own righteousness. And they are the, the, they, they are those who Jesus takes the hardest stand against because they not only do that themselves, but they put that on people. They put laws and pressure and judgment on people. But when he looks out over the Pharisees, this is what he says. How often, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, he looks out over the city. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. He's grieved over their wrongdoing. He rejoices in truth, but he's grieved over their wrongdoing. He isn't somehow rejoicing at it. Look at these last ones. Love bears all things. It means holding up under whatever comes. Love puts up with anyone. That's what it means. First Corinthians nine, Paul says, on the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. So Paul says, I'll put up with, just load me up. I'm going to bear all things for the sake of the gospel because Christ bore all things for me. But I'll put up with a lot. That's something about church membership too. We have to bear with one another. And guess what? Other people have to bear with us as well. It's bearing with others. It's saying, I will put up with anything rather than hinder the good news going out. It believes all things. It doesn't mean that love is gullible. It doesn't mean love has no discernment. I love you. You know, it's just just some sappy kind of sentimental thing. No, love celebrates truth. There's discernment. But it can also be translated, love believes always. What does it mean? Love believes all things. It means love doesn't lose faith. Love isn't cynical. It trusts God and it trusts God for others. Love hopes all things. Hope is never exhausted. We can always, loving others. If you've ever been in a difficult place and felt like someone was trusting God for you, even though you were in a difficult place. They were hoping in God. They believed the best. They hoped all, they were putting up with all kinds of things. That is a love. When someone communicates that to you, that is a deep, profound love. You hope, that's how we show love for others is we hope in God for them. I love this quote by Phil Riken. He says, most of the time, it is beyond our power to solve any major problems in the lives of people we love. Uh, that, that's just good to know. Good to know, especially for adults. Maybe that's a little different with younger kids, but with adults or older people. Most of the time, it is beyond our power to solve any major problems in the lives of the people we love. Believers keep struggling with sin. Families still have financial difficulty. Parents fight. Children fail. Friends suffer disease and death. But if we love people, we will not give up on what God can do. That's what that means. Love hopes all things. It means saying, God, you are glorious, and I will never give up hope of your working in this person's life in whatever way it is. I can't fix. I can't solve. I can make choices for one person on the planet. But I can hope in God to move. Love endures all things. It's like the previous statements. It means it doesn't give up. It's a military term that's used to mean standing against the assault of the enemy. This is a powerful verse, a powerful pastoral verse, but also a pastoral friendship verse. Second Timothy 2, Paul says, I endure everything for the sake of the gospel, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul is saying, I will put up with all manner of stuff for the sake of the gospel. I'll endure, I'll endure, because it's, he's glorious. Believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. I mean, this is convicting, right? Let me read you a quote. I love this quote from a, uh, from a commentator named Stephen Um writing on this. He wrote, what are believers supposed to do with all the impatience, cruelty, envy, boasting, arrogance, rudeness, self-insistence, irritability, resentfulness, and wrongdoing they find within themselves? What about all these limits? What about how hard it is to love our spouse or our kids? It's hard to love my church. If we are completely honest about our sin, it's even hard to love God at times. We're running on empty. 
Instead of hearing what we need to do for God or even for others, we need to hear what love has done for us. This is God's posture towards us in all our brokenness. In love, God is patient with the sinner. In love, God is kind to us. In love, God bears the believer upon his shoulders. In love, God endures us in all our unendurableness. We can't wear him out. And he's not backing down. His love never ends. The beautiful impossibility of love is a beautiful possibility in the hands of God. These verses are impossible for you and me. Just a glance at them. Beyond the wedding moment, just a glance at those. It's convicting. But if we look and say, this is the picture of Jesus with me, then there is rest for our souls that he has loved me in this way. He has endured and put up and believed and been kind to me. And by his grace, he is forming me little by little to more and more into his image. That is my hope. My hope is that the cross forgives me where I've been unloving and the cross empowers me to love by the power of the Holy Spirit. So we must grasp what he has done for us. Real quickly, that's a picture of love. Real quickly, the permanence of love. He talks about love lasts forever. Love never ends. Verse eight, as for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. Those are all spiritual gifts. We know in part, we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. So he's saying, hey, look, all of this stuff is temporary. There's coming a time when this is not needed. And that time is when Christ returns. That time is not when the scripture is completed. That time is not when the last apostle dies. That time is when Christ returns. I just say that because some people say, well, it's not really talking about the return of Christ. It's talking about the completion of the Bible. Look at verse 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Do you know fully, even as you've been known, because you've got a Bible on your lap? No, you will know fully, even as you've been known, when you see Jesus face to face and you will be like him. That's when we no longer see in a mirror. That's when we see face to face. So he's talking about the return of Christ. And he's saying here that, look, when Christ is coming, we don't need all of these gifts. These are partial. So focus on love and not gifts is what he says. And he uses two analogies. Verse 11, he compares childhood to adulthood. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. What's he saying? He's saying behavior at one point in life is not appropriate to behavior in another point in life. So when I was a kid, I acted like a kid. Now I'm at a different point. I'm an adult and I'm acting like an adult. What's that mean? Gifts are fitting for this age. But in another age, there's no need for gifts. You don't need a prophetic word when you're staring at the blazing glory of Jesus face to face in eternity. We don't know. Do we don't know, does anybody sense anything from the Lord here? Yes, he's holy. We, I praise God for spiritual gifts, but we don't really need the gift of teaching when the word himself is there in front of us. Okay? So he's saying, I, when I'm a, this, is like a, this is one season and then there's another season. So he's trying to build their view eternally. You're, you're all about these gifts. Do you know these are past? There's an expiration date on your gifts. Secondly, he compares it to a mirror in face-to-face. This one's a little confusing. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face-to-face. And we look at that and go, well, I see in a mirror, it's pretty clear. Um, Mirrors weren't what we experienced. Probably in Corinth, they had a, from what I've read, they kind of a bronze mirror. And it would have given a reflection, but not as clear as perhaps what we would see in a mirror. And he's saying, "We we get a picture We get a picture, you get a picture of Jesus from the Bible, you get a picture of God from the Bible, but there's coming a day when you're going to see him face to face, and that's the longing of our souls, that's our hope. And when we do, we will know him fully, all that can be known, we will know, and we will be known fully. So he's saying these gifts are helpful, but there's coming a day when the greater is coming, that day. So he's comparing the two ages. One, one will pass away. Love, love never ends. Prophecies will pass away. Tongues will pass away. But love never ends. Because even after Christ returns, you will know his love like never before. 
You'll be fully loved and know it. And you'll love him. Love will continue. You will love others. That's eternal. And that's why it's prioritized. The priority of love, gifts and sacrifices are nothing without love. The picture of love, the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we become more aware of his love, we can love others. And the permanence of love. Give yourself to love because love never fails. Love never ends. Love is enduring. Build your life around love. The Lord will give the gifts. The Lord will give you what you need to love people. The Lord will give you what you need to build up the church. You concentrate on the glory of Christ and how he has loved you. You concentrate on how can you empty yourself, serve, love, be kind to others. And the gifts, they'll just sort of fall into place. That's his point. They'll fall into place. One last illustration, and we're done. This sort of temporary, this faith, hope, and love, but love abide, but the greatest of these is love. This idea that love is eternal. One author wrote, Paul places these abiding certainties over against things which the Corinthians are priding themselves on. Prophecy? Who will need that in the world to come? Tongues? Why would we need to speak them in the world where everyone understands everyone else at once? Special knowledge? We shall all know everything we can know and need to know. These are things which belong to the country we live in at the moment. Love, now catch this imagery. These are the country we live in the moment. Love is God's river flowing into the future across the border into the country where there is no pride No jostling for position, no contention among God's people. We are invited to step into that river here and now and let it take us where we're going. That's the picture. We're living in this country right now, but there's a border, which is our death or the return of Jesus, whichever comes first, and there's another country. And the one thing that endures from this to that are people, their souls, Ultimately, we'll have spiritual bodies as well, those who know Christ. But, but there's a lot that stops at the border. Spiritual gifts, they stop here. A lot of things stop here. But love will go into the new heavens and the new earth. It's the river that flows from now to then. And he's saying, jump in the river. Don't worry about your gifts. Jump in the river of the love of God and loving others. And you will be carried permanently into the Lord's purposes for all eternity. You want to get in on what God's doing right now that lasts forever? Love God and love people. That endures. That's what he's saying. And we only do that as we see how Christ has loved us. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.